0: Just how fast is technology changing? I mean, the velocity of technology progress that everybody talks about is uh, something that gets this expression of accelerating change. That's what we're gonna talk about in this, the fourth episode of The Last Optimist. The new businesses, new technologies, that seem to, I mean, they seem like they leap overnight into the public view. We spawned a kind of uh, accepted wisdom that the pace of technology change is accelerating. But in fact, the critical and fundamental ways that technology makes differences to our lives, they aren't accelerating. They're moving kind of at the same pace they all have for a very long time. And the the problem is that the misplaced wisdom about accelerating change uh, infects how fast we think we can solve big problems. Like uh, you know, we deploy slogan centric claims of uh, accelerating the technologies to change everything from well climate change or Europe's problems with uh, oil and gas dependence on Russia or um, solving COVID or solving any problem we have this this idea that we can accelerate our solutions because we can accelerate technology. So in this episode, we're gonna explore, um, the big picture first, what history and reality show us is the actual pace of technology change. And then because it's impossible to ignore, we'll talk about what the reality tells us about the velocity of technology change in energy markets, because we're already seeing lots of plans and policy proposals to you know, double down what we're told is a quote, accelerating energy transition away from hydrocarbons, and especially from the hydrocarbons that Putin sells the world. And then finally, I wanna talk about how the velocity of change applies to the realities in the electric car market, because it's the sort of the icon of change in not only energy, but in many ways in technology. And in, in fact, in 2021, Last year, we saw a record, quote, acceleration in the number of electric vehicles on the world's roads. So, First, though, a spoiler alert. As you might guess uh, from what I've said and written before, the underlying realities uh, make it clear that there is no fast or accelerating energy transition that will de-link the world from oil and gas or even coal, no matter who produces it. And when it comes to electric vehicles, and with all due credit to Elon Musk and Tesla, by the way, whose cars still accounted for three-fourths of all EV sales in America last year, <laughs> and one-third of all the EV sales outside of China in the whole world. EVs are not about to quickly replace all the internal combustion engines in the world, as I'll explain when we get to that part about the velocity problem. In general, making big changes i mean, to, to big systems, society-scale systems, society-scale infrastructures, faces the same kind of sort of inertial resistance that we see in the world of physics. In fact, I'm stealing a physics term. It's far easier to accelerate or stop something small. This should be obvious, right? Like a toy car and then something big, like a super tanker. And that's true about uh, economies too. It takes far more time than it's popularly uh, recognized to change the fundamental technologies that are used to make it possible for everybody's society to do something like travel, communicate, make stuff you know, feed feed civilization but it, what's it, here's what's interesting the timelines for how technologies change those systems and they do i mean this is one thing that's clear when you study history we all know this intuitively we don't you don't have to be a historian to know that technologies have made big changes in how we do things in society but the timelines for them are a little different than most people realize and i think what's fascinating is the timelines are very consistent in terms of the pattern of how technology changes big systems in society. And those patterns are important to understand because they tell us a lot about the future. In fact, I spent a fair bit of time exploring those patterns and writing my book, you know, The Cloud Revolution. Of course, I'm still promoting my book because it's still a new book. But setting aside the promotion, the, the thing that interested me uh, was understanding the patterns, the timeline patterns in particular, because it's one way to try to figure out what the near future will hold. If you know what the patterns are and you know what the stage is for various technologies, you can have some sense of whether or not things that are really going to change the world soon uh, are in fact true or whether they're still at a very early stage of, uh, of growth. So let's start out with uh, what I would call the three phases of overnight success for technologies and companies. But think about the, uh, the pace uh, of how new innovations enter market, how new inventions enter market. The pace of it follows what I call a kind of rule of threes. There are three phases. And again, as soon as I stated, it's sort of obvious. There's, there's three phases in the uh, entrance of new technologies or new companies based on the technologies into markets. You go from invention of uh, the, uh, the idea itself, whether it's a science idea or a technology invented, to converting that invention into something that's commercially viable. And of course, commercial viability has to do with both reliability and cost, scaling it. And then the third phase is the growth phase, the scaling phase, so that the commercial product uh, has a significant impact on the market. There's enough uh, of the market has adopted the product or the service. That, of course, means that you have social and economic impact. It's also when companies uh, become big. So... Think about this, once a disruptive innovation, and that's the phrase everybody likes to use, that was uh, created by Clayton Christensen at Harvard, this whole idea of disruptive innovators, it captivated Silicon Valley, everybody wanted to be a disruptor, so, but I digress. Once a disruptive innovation starts to, well, disrupt the market, everybody looks at that in hindsight as the sort of proverbial overnight success. But the typical dynamic over history uh, the pattern of threes, we, we see that the overnight success is typically 50 to 60 years in the making, That in, in, or put differently, each stage of the pattern uh, of, from invention to commercial viability to begin enter significant impact on the market. Each stage takes about 20 years, and it has through most of modern history. So think about this, 20 years, it was 20 years after the uh, invention of the automobile, which was, by the way, the automobile was invented in 1886. It was about 20 years after that, before the first practical design emerged, it was the Model T. Then it was about 20 more years before the inflection point began when uh, cars were a significant share of, uh, of the population, had one, It was about 5% penetration. And then it was about 20 more years before it became a, a relatively ubiquitous product, where about 20% of the population had a car. So we saw the 2020 20, 20, 20 rule there. Or as another example, it was about two decades after uh, a scientist named Hertz uh, proved that there were radio waves before Marconi invented the first radio. Then it was about another 20 years before the rapid rise of radio technologies took place in the 1920s. And then it went a little faster. It took about a decade for a uh, significant uh, market penetration of the radio. Or if we come to more modern times, because people think that this phenomenon is, is uh, the pattern I'm talking about is an old pattern. The PC itself, well, it didn't come on the scene until about 20 years after the first commercial computer. The first commercial computer was the 1951 Univac, vacuum tube computer, but it was 20 years after the first computer before you saw the first PC and to wind it back in time. That first computer did not show up until about 20 years after their very first electronic computer was built by somebody was quote invented. And by the way, for the cognoscenti and computers, it wasn't the ENIAC, uh, which is in the news, uh, for those who read the history of computing, the ENIAC, which was a government, uh, uh, and code cracking computer of 1944. It was a computer uh, built by two Iowa State College professors in 1937 that uh, history records as being the sort of the invention of the modern electronic computer. How about cell phones? I mean, those accelerated on the market, right? Well, it was two decades again after the first sort of portable radio phone. And keep in mind a cell phone is basically a radio. It's a portable radio. It's a radio phone fundamentally. Uh, the first portable radio phones were invented by Motorola. They was the 35 pound backpack uh, radio that the GIs carried around in World War II. It was, it was a full two decades after that before Bell Labs conceived of the idea of a cellular, cellular radio network that made cell phones possible. And then it was almost two decades after that before Motorola uh, had the first cell phone and then market penetration to about 25% took another two decades. So, so much for overnight acceleration of cell phones. I mean, it's the same pattern with drones, for example. The idea of a drone has been around a long time, but the first viable design for a uh, general purpose drone took place in the, uh, in the 1970s. Then it was 20 years before the first commercially viable product uh, started to uh, enter the market. And it was another 20 years T- roughly, roughly around 2010, before drones really uh, began to take off as a product, both not just for consumers to play with, but for all kinds of commercial activities, you know, insurance adjusters use them routinely now, instead of climbing on roofs, they use drones. How about 3D printing? I mean, th- you know what 3D printing is. Uh, if you don't, it's uh, the printer, you, you print um, paper with from your you know, computer, uh, it's in fact in three dimensions. It's just a very shallow third dimension. You know, it, it prints horizontally in a little little microscopic stack of ink to make the um, the print appear on paper. If you just keep stacking the ink higher, and it wasn't ink, it was metal. You'd have a three D printer making metal parts. So that's sort of like a Star Trek kind of technology that can print parts in three dimensions from a computer image. Pretty cool, um, and it's they're real. But the technology itself finds its origins roughly in the mid nineteen eighties. And it was then two decades before the first viable machines entered the commercial and industrial markets. And then it was another two decades, roughly our era, before 3D printers uh, began to approach uh, roughly a 10% market share in the machine tool market. And it'll be another two decades, by the way, before they become a dominant share of the machine tool market. How about electric cars? Elon Musk. I want to, you know, beat this twenty-year, three-phase pattern to death here, and it's because it's important to understand this to, to have a, a realistic sense of how technology uh, changes things in the world, and whether or not what people are claiming they want to have happen can happen. So let's talk about Elon Musk's incredible success. Uh, if we want to trace the origins of the modern electric car, you have to go back to the invention of lithium battery chemistry, which was. Uh, Back in the late 70s, it was 20 years after the invention of lithium battery chemistry before the first commercially viable lithium batteries were in the market. And then it was another 20 years before the first Teslas appeared using uh, commodity lithium batteries. And it's going to be another 20 years after the first Tesla uh, before we see the total number of cars on the road that are battery powered breach the 5% share of all vehicles. So 2020 and 20 again. Uh, let's do one more example, if I if I may. Uh, the invention of the incredible mRNA vaccines in the wake of the uh, uh, horrific coronavirus crisis. Uh, the development of those vaccines aptly named Operation Warp Speed, the overnight success. Well, okay, same pattern. The discovery of messenger RNA, mRNA, the existence of mRNA dates back to the 60s. It was more than 20 years before, the, before scientists had the capability to sort of experiment with mRNA to try to think about how to use it to do something like make therapies or vaccines. And then it was another 20 years before the technology had some commercial viability roughly 2005 that we had a technique. And then pretty close to 20 years after that before we saw operation warp speed. So the overnight success, same pattern. Roughly three phases, roughly 20 years in each phase. Sometimes the phases are a little slower, sometimes a little faster. In fact, an example of a little faster was the uh, advent of the internet itself. It was only about a decade after the uh, what's called packet switching idea, the way to code information on communication networks that would allow you to create the World Wide Web. That idea of packet switching, which to explain it is uh, basically attaching a code to each block of information, that, like like a Lego building block that tells the receiver where that packet of information belongs in the building up the picture or building up the sound or the word. Packet switching uh, is what it made possible to put the internet on telephone networks. It was only about a decade after packet switching before the idea of the internet appeared. But then, it, it, And it was built on the telephone network, which was already there. But then it took about two decades for the commercialization of the World Wide Web and another decade plus before it had significant market, market penetration. So a little faster, you know, a decade, two decades and a decade, but same pattern, didn't happen, quote, overnight. Sometimes the patterns are slower, too. I mean, getting a man to the moon seemed to happen pretty quickly. You know, the famous within this decade phrase that President John Kennedy made Uh, when he gave this uh, uh, world uh, moving speech and announcement at uh, Rice University in Texas way back in the early 60s. He did it, right? But keep in mind that he said that two decades after the first rocket reached outer space. and, And now here we are 50 years since then and launch costs are finally coming down courtesy of technology promoted by people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but, and also NASA had a big hand in it. But the key to practicality of space to make things like space tourism possible is still in our future. It's a much slower pattern, but it's the same pattern. You remember Andy Grove, who was uh, the second uh, CEO of Intel, in his retirement, he preached passionately about the importance of understanding just how hard it is to engineer and build at scale for real, real world companies to have real world impact. In fact, he wrote a lot about, and and, and every, every CEO of a real company knows this, every entrepreneur knows this. He wrote about the hidden challenges in these three phases to go from an idea to a product, from a product to a company and to scale. In fact, I'll tell you the pattern shows up again with the idea of the transistor. It was two decades after the idea of a silicon transistor before Intel was founded. And it was two decades after Intel was founded, before it and the technologies it made became um, products of uh, significant consequence in the market. In fact, let's just talk about modern times. It was 20 years after the birth of the internet before Amazon would go public. And it was not 20 years after Amazon went public before it became obvious that e-commerce was reaching an inflection point and breached sort of 5% of all retail sales. So this, this whole pattern that I've laid out sort of beaten to death, the point of that is that it's a pattern in the physics of reality of how long it takes to build systems, to make, make stuff out of atoms, to penetrate markets, to convince businesses and consumers to use a new kind of product. These things all have inertia. And I explore some of that in my book, of course, because it's an important predicate to understanding the nature and scale of technologies that are just now entering the third phase. That is, they can now scale, that they're now commercially viable. They're, they're now at the beginning of the inflection point, because if you want to know the near future, the next decade or so, you'd want to know what was already invented, already made commercially viable, but doesn't have significant market penetration, because that will tell you a lot about the near future. But look, there's a lot of pundits and politicians that uh, invoke and name policies, you know, the moonshot, the moonshot of X, you fill in the blank, the moonshot, and the moonshot to cure cancer, the moonshot to, to solve X or solve Y. This is This is the nomenclature that's used because of the misunderstanding of how the moonshot happened, the timelines that led up to it, but also the misunderstanding of scaling after the moonshot. I mean, getting one man on the moon, or actually it was a dozen, and they were all men, as you know, uh, there will be women on the moon in the future, but that was then, this is now. But the the moonshot wasn't about putting all of humanity on the moon, which would be a market penetration of significance, if you like, but, but putting a dozen people on the moon. So put sort of unkindly, the moonshot was a stunt. It wasn't a market a market-changing phenomena. Putting satellites in orbit is market-changing. We went from a few satellites in orbit to thousands of satellites in orbit, and that's the commercial satellite business is enormous. And of course, that one followed the same pattern of twenty-twenty and twenty rule. And we're already at significant market penetration. Let me let me let me turn this to what it means for the energy markets. I'm coming back to energy uh, in future podcasts. I'll I'll come back to the communications the metaverse 3d printing robots and what that pattern tells us about those technologies but because again of ukraine of russia and because of the call to quote, double down on green energy to de-link ourselves from oil and gas and especially de-link from russian oil and gas understanding the timelines and the pace of change in energy markets the velocity of change Really, really matters. It's serious business now. It's deadly serious business. It's very difficult to scale energy systems at global scales. So again, keep in mind where we've been and how, how how much work it's taking to change these massive systems that fuel the world because energy is not just essential. It's what's needed for survival. It's not a nice to have uh, energy for society. is like food for humans. It's the fuel of survival, but you want it to be cheap and reliable. You don't want it to dominate an economy. So today's reality is to keep in mind is that the hydrocarbons, oil, natural gas, and coal supply 84% of the world's energy. Two decades ago, it was 86%. So it's a two percentage point decline over two decades. And it's cost the world more than $5 trillion, by the way, to, to to make that change. So two decades, we've dropped it by two percentage points. And over that time, over those two decades, the overall energy consumption of the world has increased by an amount equal to adding two entire United States worth of demand. So that small decline would tell you a lot uh, about the inertial resistance if you like, the physical economic challenge of building enough energy systems fast enough to make a difference. I could illustrate it. I mean, the the inertia challenge in physical terms rather than economic terms or percentage terms might might help have a sense of the scale of things that one has to do to change the world's energy economies. I mean, it, today, the world's economies require the annual production, and I'll express it in barrels of oil equivalent terms. Uh, the world uses about 90 billion barrels of energy in oil equivalent terms each year of oil, gas, and coal. And it's split pretty equally, in fact, amongst oil, gas, and coal. So 90 billion barrels equivalent of oil, gas, and coal are produced each year to keep the world operating. If all that fuel were, in fact, oil, just to give you a sense of scale, and put in barrels, the barrels would form a line from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, and that line would increase in height by one Washington Monument every week. That's the physical quantity of energy that the world needs. To to completely replace all those hydrocarbons over the next, say, 20 years, which is not just uh, a number I'm picking out of the air, it's, it's a number put into policy in many countries, including our own, to replace all those hydrocarbons with renewable energy or any other energy form, but let's say the renewables, would require rec- increasing the physical production of renewable energy over those 20 years by 9,000%. So just to give you context, over a period of a half a century, global oil and gas production increased by about 1,000%. So you can do a lot, but that's a 1,000% increase in physical infrastructure for oil and gas over a half a century. Now we're being told that we can increase physical hardware to produce the same kind of energy, but from wind, solar, and batteries. But we're gonna do it in less than half the time and nine times faster. That's just in inertia terms, not physically possible. In economic terms, material terms, it's just just not gonna happen. It's just not physically possible. It's the inertia, if you like, of the systems that would tell you the reality of what can't be done. And to give you one more example in that space, just because it's very relevant these days, uh, batteries are being proposed as the way not to power cars thats one, but also to store the electricity, the grids will need if the wind and sun uh, aren't available. Well, there's two kinds of unavailability from the wind and sun. There's one is the obvious is that when the sun sets, there's no sun and th- there's less wind in the daytime than at night globally. It's just a phenomena. So they, they cycle. And when they're both not available uh, you can build batteries in principle. There's also another phenomena, not the diurnal phenomena of wind and sun waning and growing during different uh, times of the day. There is the case that meteorologically, there are long periods, hours, sometimes days, when the entire continents are covered in cloud, uh, you no know, sun, and have no wind, total, totally be calmed, again, for days. So you'd have to have batteries for that too. Just to give a sense of scale again, if you were using batteries to store that kind of electricity, uh, you'd have to build a lot of batteries. Billions and billions of Tesla car class batteries, or put it in factory terms. You know, Elon Musk famously built the world's first, what he called gigafactory to make electric car batteries. Now the world's building dozens upon dozens of gigafactories. But to store, uh, say roughly a day's worth of America's electricity for those periods which are guaranteed to happen, there's no sun and wind for about a day to store that much electricity and batteries you need all of the world's gigafactories output uh, that are now currently planned or exist you'd need their output for the next century to build enough batteries just for the united states to store enough electricity for a day or so of electricity that's a big scale problem is it impossible to eventually build those batteries in theory no is it likely given the inertia No, and and can you accelerate that construction of those gigafactories? Yes, you could build the factories faster, but you couldn't get the materials you need faster because there you have to go back upstream to the mines. Lots of mines and materials, you have to mine lithium, you have to mine copper, aluminum, and you need cobalt, manganese, nickel. These are all produced at mines the mines have their own inertia. The mines are very difficult to build. It takes a long time to dig rock up, crush the rock and make the materials. You need a lot of materials. Again, let me give you context. It takes about 60 pounds of batteries to store the energy equivalent in one pound of hydrocarbons. And the 60 pounds of batteries, you have to dig up around 600 pounds of the earth, or let me put this in Tesla terms to make a single thousand pound Tesla battery for a single car, you have to dig up about 500,000 pounds of the earth to get to the materials you need to make the battery. So we need a lot more mining, a lot more mines. That just takes time. And if you set aside whether or not we might relax uh, regulations about accelerating mine construction or whether people would oppose the mines, which many environmental groups do, it takes not Months, not a few years, it can take decades to open a mine. In principle, you might be able to open a mine in five to 10 years, but the global average is about 16 years, according to the International Energy Agency. So, in the face of all this, we hear a lot of uh, rhetoric uh, wrapping around the idea of Moore's Law that we can expect technology will make a big difference here, that we can get a Moore's Law kind of acceleration in the production of green energy machines, of batteries and of electric vehicles. But you, you know what Moore's law is. This is the, uh, this is the phenomena that Gordon Moore uh, coined the phrase, or he was coined around him, where he pointed out years ago that the transistor density on computer chips was doubling about every 18 months, 18 months to two years. This is what's led to computers being small enough to sit in your hand and having the computing horsepower of 10,000 mainframes from the 1980s, that's Moore's law. It's an amazing phenomenon in computing areas, a phenomenon I'll talk about in other podcasts, but here's the problem. There's no Moore's law in in mining. There's no Moore's law in energy. Yes, we can use computers to make mining cleaner and more efficient. Yes, we can use computers in the cloud to make manufacturing and chemical processing more efficient, but there's no Moore's law in the physics of energy. In fact, it scales the other direction. If there were a Moore's law on the physics of energy, you'd have, well, just to give you an example of how silly the idea is, it would mean that eventually batteries would become powerful enough and small enough that a single battery the size of a hardcover book would be enough to to power a jumbo jet uh, across the Pacific. That's never gonna happen in the universe we live in. The physics of energy make it clear that that's impossible. In the universe that we live in, batteries aren't going to follow Moore's law. Wind turbines don't follow Moore's law. Wind turbines get bigger, not smaller. The newest wind turbines are bigger than the Washington Monument by by 50 percent. They use gigatons of concrete and glass and steel and kilotons of neodymium. Lots and lots of materials it takes a long time to, to mine them. It takes a long time to expand the production. One can do it. One can push hard on these, but in the commodities world, what you get is a economic phenomena when you push hard against the inertial resistance, if you like, of big physical systems. If you demand more from them, big physical systems like mining and big systems like agriculture and farming, big systems like delivering electricity, if you demand more than you can supply, if the demand velocity is faster than the supply velocity, if you want to put it in those terms, you get an outcome that is, well, it's sort of an economics 101 outcome. The price spikes, prices soar. You have more demand than you can meet with the supply. The, the velocity of demand grows faster than the velocity of supply. In the commodities world, that leads to price inflation, which is already happening. We're already seeing that. Part of that is a result of sort of the so-called V-shaped recovery out of the great lockdowns, as consumers have started spending more on goods. And when you spend more on goods, you're facing inertia. It's not spending more time on Zoom, you're spending more on goods, on furniture, on house renovations. You can't quickly expand lumber production or nickel production, or the number of ships that can carry the materials around the world. So you get out of proportion price inflation. And if you add to that the laws and mandates and regulations to to require more use of materials intensive wind, solar, and batteries, then you amplify the price inflation, which is exactly what's happened. This is exactly where we are with record inflation in the cost of all kinds of mineral commodities and energy. It's not just that we have a recovery going on, and it's not just that we have some supply being threatened with the Ukraine war, it's also because we have feckless policies to use a technical term and pushing hard on things that can't be made to go as fast as aspirations would like. This is not a good thing to do for economies. It's not a good thing to do geopolitically. And it's not a good thing to do, I would say morally because the world uh, can't afford uh, energy and uh, food prices to keep escalating. This is self-evident but what I wanted to really sort of map out for everyone was this, those sort, if you like the root causes of where we are in terms of inflation and the root cause can be traced to, again, I'm saying in sort of simple or simplistic terms to the velocity and inertial challenges in physical systems in the real world, whether we're building data centers, whether we're building mines, power plants, I don't care what kind of power plants they are, whether they're combustion turbines, or gas turbines, you face the inertial challenges of scale, the physics of energy, the physics of infrastructures means that things require time. And if you try to push it faster than is physically reasonable or possible, you cause price inflation. This, is, uh, this can be fixed by the way, and I think it will get fixed. I think reality is already beginning to intervene. So let me just end with this bottom line. Uh, the world is going to use more energy, and it's going to use more materials. We can supply both at scale. We can probably supply it at scale faster than in the past. I think the three phases can't be changed, but the 2020-20 rule can be compressed somewhat. Imagine it was a 15-15-15 rule. That would be enormously economically consequential. So I want to end on this note that the marginal impact of accelerating the sort of the rule of threes and velocity from say 20, 20, 20 years to say 15, 15 and 15 years. The marginal impact of that is enormously economically productive. That means that the world will become wealthier. People will become better off rather than poorer if we can do that. And we can do that, uh, which is essentially the thesis uh, coming full circle of my book, The Cloud Revolution. That's what can happen that's what's already beginning to happen. And if we have policies that would acknowledge where the realities are and facilitate that kind of transformation, uh, we'd have a very exciting um, decade coming up. In fact, we could even have a roaring 2020s, to to coin a phrase. So with that, let me uh, close. This has been um, another episode uh, with Mark Mills and look forward to seeing you on my next installment of The Last Optimist.